Hello everyone and welcome back to the Mimetic Exegete podcast. I'm your host, Simon Skidmore. In this episode, we will begin a new study in the book of Numbers. As you may recall, in seasons two and three, we made our way through the book of Genesis, which functions as a type of prequel to the book of Exodus, addressing questions concerning the conception of Israel as a large group of people and how they wound up in Egypt. Exodus then picks up the narrative of Israel's liberation from their Egyptian slave masters, which forms much, if not all, of the biblical narrative which follows. Having been emancipated from slavery, Israel must formulate their own laws, rules and customs and rituals to control mimetic rivalry within their midst. Much of the book of Exodus is dedicated to this material, including the construction of the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus then continues Israel's discovery of law and ritual as a means of managing mimetic rivalry within their community. The next book in the saga is the Book of Numbers, which traces Israel's journey through the wilderness to the edge of the Promised Land. As we make our way through the Book of Numbers, we shall see it is a mixed bag of narrative, genealogies, ritual and law. The Book of Numbers opens with the Lord commanding Moses to carry out a census of every male 20 years and older who is capable of engaging in warfare. Why? because Israel is about to go to war with the inhabitants of the land and they want to know how big their army will be. So what follows is a lot of names and numbers, a census, the data, if you like, of this Israelite census. But one tribe is excluded from the census, the tribe of Levi. Let's read on now from Numbers chapter 1, verse 51. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. If any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel." And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. While the rest of the Israelite tribes are arranged in battle formation, the tribe of Levi forms a protective barrier around the tabernacle so that no wrath may break out towards the congregation of Israel. The tribes arranged in their battle formation around the Levites and the tabernacle. The Levites are set apart from the rest of Israel to undertake the dangerous work of ministering in the tabernacle. You may recall that in Exodus chapter 32, the tribe of Levi is ordained to minister to the Lord when they answer Moses' call to slay their fellow Israelites. By killing their brothers and sisters, the Levites are blessed by the Lord. So how does this work? Why does the Lord bless the Levites on account of their murderous violence? Because the primitive sacred can only bring blessing through violence. In Exodus 32, the Levites personify the 
spirit of the primitive sacred as they perpetuate violence against their people who have forsaken the very laws and rituals which keep mimetic rivalry and violence in check. This passage serves as the Levites' origin story, explaining why they are set apart from the rest of Israel to serve the Lord in the sacred tabernacle space. Now in Numbers chapter 1, we see the Levites surround the tabernacle and keep guard over it so that no wrath may break out against the people of Israel. If a non-Levite approaches the tabernacle, the Levites who embody the primitive sacred will slay that person who attempted to gain unauthorized access to the tabernacle. In a sense, the Levites become one with the primitive sacred as they exact violence upon those who transgress the sacred boundary. As we read on in chapter 3, we read that the Levites are the truly given ones, granted to Aaron to protect and guard the priesthood. From verse 12, the Lord states, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord." In ancient Israel, every firstborn was sacrificed to the Lord as a tribute, whether from the flock, field, or family. Our passage claims that the Lord consecrated to himself, or claimed for himself, all the firstborn when he struck down the firstborn of Egypt on the Passover evening. You may recall that on the evening of the Passover, a mimetic crisis claimed the lives of Egyptians' firstborn while the Lord protected Israel. Although the passage is not totally clear on how the Lord's actions on the Passover evening justify his claim to Israel's firstborn, mimetic theory may help solve this conundrum. Throughout the Exodus, we noted numerous warnings that if the people failed to uphold the Lord's rules and statutes, they would experience the plagues of Egypt. In other words, unless Israel can control and vent the mimetic desire within their community, they too will be ravished by mimetic rivalry. Communicating a similar idea, our passage deifies mimetic violence in the person of the Lord and stakes this God's claim upon all the firstborn. To save their firstborn from mimetic violence, Israel must offer the Levites as a substitute. The Levites are given over to the primitive sacred that Israel's firstborn might live. The Levites become Israel's scapegoats who are offered as a substitute for the lives of the community's firstborn. Although the Levites are not executed, they are set apart from the rest of their community as a violent group who dwell in the realm of the primitive sacred and embody mimetic violence. Scapegoats are often portrayed as perpetrators of violence, both the personification of good and evil and of blessing and of curse. In Exodus 32, the Levites secure the Lord's blessing by violently slaying their fellow Israelites. Their violence is so pervasive that scapegoats are often credited with bringing about their own communal execution, which brings a blessing to the community. 
banished to the realm of the primitive sacred, the Levites are practically dead to the rest of their community. Through this death, the Levites bring a blessing to the community, saving the firstborn and protecting them from sacred violence. In a sense, the Levites' story as guardians of the sacred space who are scapegoated by their communities is also the story of Adam back in the garden narrative of Genesis 2 and 3. Like the Levites, Adam is placed in the garden to work it and to guard it, the same verb used in this passage to describe the Levites' protection of the tabernacle's sacred space. Just as the Levites are set apart and segregated from the rest of their community, so Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden space in the Genesis garden narrative. Adam and Eve suffer this sort of symbolic death once they eat of the forbidden fruit in the garden, similar to this sort of social death that the Levites suffer being expelled to the presence of the primitive sacred. The commonality between these two texts show the scapegoat mechanism at work. To keep the machine of the primitive sacred running, communities need to scapegoat. In the garden narrative, Adam and Eve are scapegoated for questioning the conventional wisdom of their community. Similarly, the Levites are banished and sentenced to maintain and guard the realm of the primitive sacred to ensure the continuing well-being of their community. Let's read on now from chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous or has a discharge or everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so and put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. Let's take a moment to revisit this idea of graded holiness, which we spoke about in previous episodes. The Israelite camp is arranged in concentric circles of descending holiness. As you get further away from the center of the camp, things become less holy and more common. In the tabernacle is the very center, the nexus of holiness. And even in the tabernacle, there's the holiest of holies where the Lord dwells with the Ark of the Covenant and the priest, only the high priest that is, can enter only once, once per year on the Day of Atonement and do a very specific ritual to atone for the sins of Israel. And then as we move outward from there, we come to the holy place inside the tabernacle where the priests and Levites minister, they keep the showbread maintained, they keep the lamps burning and that sort of thing. But no common person can enter in there, just the Levites and the priests. You notice as we get further away from the tabernacle, we're getting more access to different people. Then as we move outside the tabernacle, we come to like the tabernacle precinct where there's an altar and sacrifices are altered. 
and you'll find there, you'll find lay people can go, but they aren't allowed to offer the sacrifices themselves. They come and bring their sacrifices to the priest who offers a sacrifice on the altar to God. Then when we get outside the tabernacle, we come more into the common space where the people live. And now we're talking about the tribes. And inside these tribes, there's a certain level of impurity that is tolerated. Now, we can't have any impurity inside the tabernacle. That's just off limits. If impurity enters the tabernacle and, God forbid, the holiest of holies where God is dwelling, we risk an outburst of divine violence. And you may recall, look, as we've been reading through Leviticus, there's certain sorts of impurity which are tolerated, but they're not allowed inside the tabernacle space. For example, we talked about female menstruation or men who have had a discharge of semen, and they were considered unclean. They had to wash their bodies and stay away from the tabernacle precinct for 24 hours. And then someone who's given birth might have to be quarantined for seven days. The idea here is that impurity if it makes its way towards the deity, may risk an violent outburst. So we want to quarantine and stop the spread of impurity. If you've listened to my series on Leviticus, you'll remember there's this idea of impurity like COVID-19. We're trying to protect everyone from it. We're trying to socially distance. We're trying to create barriers like masks so that we stop the spread of this impurity. When we get to Numbers chapter 5, the writer takes it all to another level. You'll see that the writer commands everyone who is unclean to leave the camp. Whether they're women suffering from menstrual discharge, males suffering from emissions of semen, um, it doesn't matter. Even a leper, everyone has to leave the camp. So there's a wholly restrictive, much more strict version of purity protocols in these couple of verses. But why? Well, Numbers chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 is most likely one of the latest texts included in the Pentateuch. Of course, there's debate around this, but the evidence certainly seems to lean in that direction. This text postdates the laws concerned with leprosy and genital discharges outlined in Leviticus and represents a later theological reflection on these traditions. Even though Leviticus doesn't describe the leper as impure, the writer of Numbers chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 assumes that lepers are expelled from the camp because of purity concerns. He then makes the logical jump that all forms of impurity should be expelled outside the camp to protect the primitive sacred. It's unlikely that this law was ever imposed due to its impractical nature. Like, how are we going to expel all women who are menstruating outside the camp? How is that going to be practical that, say, a quarter of the population has to go and dwell outside the camp and it rotates Maybe we have to run some sort of hotel outside the camp, some sort of service to cater to these people. But you can quickly see that it just probably wouldn't work. However, Numbers chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 does give us an insight into the ancient concern for purity and the importance of protecting the sacred space from biological impurity. 
Reading on now from verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that the people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel which bring to the priests, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations, whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. We've already seen this pattern of making restitution for wrongs committed by repaying the cost of the damage plus another fifth. Notice the offender must go through the steps of recognition, admitting their guilt, and making full restitution to the injured party. This process stifles potential rivalry between the offender and their victim. First, the offender must recognize their own sin before restitution can begin. Second, the offender confesses their sin. It's very difficult to reconcile with someone who doesn't recognize their own guilt or denies any wrongdoing. True reconciliation often begins with an apology from the guilty party. Without an admission of guilt, an apology, or perhaps even a show of remorse, the injured party often struggles to find closure even when the perpetrator is judged and punished. With this in mind, our passage stresses the importance of the offender's omission of guilt. Third, the offender must provide adequate reparation to the injured party. When these three steps are completed successfully, the breach of faith is restored and relationships are mended. This process aims to achieve closure and healing for both the offender and the victim. Even if there is no victim or next of kin, the offender achieves healing and restoration by paying reparation to the priests. Therefore, the book of Numbers continues the Pentateuch's concern for managing mimetic rivalry within the community. These issues become increasingly important as Israel prepares to take over the promised land of Canaan. During their conquest, Israel will attempt to harness the power of the primitive sacred's violence for war against their enemies while avoiding it breaking out and destroying themselves in the process. Thanks again for joining me on the Mimetic Exegete podcast. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you may do so on the Mimetic Exegete Facebook group. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you.